you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 32 through to 45. And then I'll pray for us. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that, the, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you this morning for your son. Lord, we want to see him clearly this morning. 
We want to see him afresh in some way this morning. And so I just pray, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me as I preach this word for your glory, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Peter Martin from the Sydney Morning Herald writes the following. Once we talked about the great Australian dream. Now it's something meaner. Getting ahead. The great Australian dream meant owning your own home. Getting ahead means getting ahead of someone else. It's how the treasurer Scott Morrison sees the Australian dream. I think it is great in this country that people want to aspire to do better and provide for their kids. So I I don't judge people for actually wanting to get ahead. The treasurer told radio host Neil Mitchell a few weeks back. That's what this country is about. Getting ahead. I don't know what you make of what Scott Morrison is talking about uh, this morning, but, you know, in our city, it can feel sometimes like we're runners in the city to surf. I don't know if you've ever participated in the city to surf, but there's about 80,000 people that rock up. There's a sea of people, people everywhere. And at the starting line, you're often cramped in together with all of these other people. And in some ways... Um, as the crowds swarm ahead, you can kind of get a picture of what, for many people, it can feel like living in this city. There's people everywhere, all fighting for a spot to stay in the race. And if only I could just get ahead. If only I could just move out in front. You know what I'm talking about. You turn up to the open house, and the runners are there. And you try not to make eye contact uh, at all. And you make a beeline for the real estate agent to hand in your application first. Getting ahead. Uh, the executive director is visiting your office. And you look around at your colleagues. And you tell yourself this. You say, this is the moment I've been training for all year. And so you place yourself in the best position for making the best impression. Getting ahead. We live in a city that values getting ahead, doing whatever it takes to put myself and my family in the best possible position financially. But this way of thinking is completely opposite to the way of Christ. In fact, in light of the fact that our culture so strongly pushes us towards get-ahead thinking, we really need to once again hear from Jesus in this moment. This is the second time he has taught explicitly on this topic. His example is the opposite. It's the antithesis of getting ahead. It is the example of self-sacrifice. This message, the title for those that are taking notes is, He Came to Give His Life. And I've got three simple points that come from the text itself, but one real heart for this message, one real hope for this message, and that's that we'd freshly embrace the self-sacrificing example of Jesus Christ. I want us to see it afresh, and I want us to embrace it, his self-sacrificing example. You know, this morning we're camping out at the foot of the cross, and 
we're going to see the Savior ever so patiently look to equip his disciples for life after the cross. And so let's dive right into the text and our first point, which is a final passion prediction. A final passion prediction. Uh, Just by way of context, we've been talking for some time about the revolutionary values of the kingdom of God. Uh, That's what Jesus has been teaching his disciples ever since chapter 8 on. And on clear view in our passage this morning is the incredible patience of the Lord. You know, three times Jesus predicts his coming death and three times the disciples mess it up. Three times. You know, Jesus has been showing the radical difference between the values of his disciples and the values of the kingdom of God. His disciples have been arguing about who is the greatest. They've been banning non-authorized people from doing ministry. They've been trivializing marriage. They've been forbidding children from coming to Jesus. And Jesus ever so patiently has been showing them the values of the kingdom and how they're opposite to the values of this world, how they're to deny themselves, how they're to embrace the gospel, how they're to follow him, that service defines greatness, that marriage is precious, that children are a picture of the helplessness required to enter the kingdom of God and that no amount of riches, no amount of power, no amount of goodness can help a person enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus this morning continues by instructing his disciples again about his mission. In fact, this morning we're going to read one of the verses which is really the key verse of the whole of the gospel, the very center of the gospel of Mark itself. By way of context, Jesus is almost at Jerusalem itself, and we're going to see the story slow right down from what has been weeks and months through to days as we come closer and closer to the cross. So let's get stuck in and continue reading our text from verse 32, right at the beginning. And it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They're on the road to Jerusalem and they're literally going up. Jerusalem was about a kilometer above sea level and it was quite a significant ascent in order to get up to Jerusalem. This is the first time Jerusalem's actually been mentioned in the whole of the gospel. And we know what's coming. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, but also with a bunch of other followers as well. Uh, Maybe pilgrims with, with them. Maybe there's other disciples traveling with them. We're not told but they're making their way up to Jerusalem. Let's keep going. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Jesus is leading a charge with his disciples and he has this new intensity. You know, in Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 51, we're told that Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. And they're amazed Why are they amazed? What's so amazing? Well, they're expecting a messianic showdown in Jerusalem. You know, earlier in chapter 8, Peter had said to to Jesus, you are the Christ. You see, the disciples, they believed that, that Jesus was God's chosen king and they were marching into Jerusalem for what purpose? To take the throne. That's why they were coming. Jesus, in this moment, was going to overthrow the Romans and the chief priests. He was going to take the glorious eternal reign of the Messiah. It would begin in the coming moments. And so they were 
amazed. But others were afraid. Why? Well, in John's Gospel, we learn that it was common knowledge that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And in fact, in Bethany in John 11, when he had raised Lazarus, we learn that 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 incident was the straw that broke the camel's back for the Jews. It says in John 11.53, after he raised Lazarus, so from that day, they made plans to put him to death. This was common knowledge. And so knowing this, some were afraid. There's a showdown coming. Will there be civil war? The Messiah versus the Jewish establishment. And so in light of this, it is so unexpected what Jesus says next. What a shock. What a surprise. No wonder it was confusing and impossible to understand. You know, I just want to pause for a moment before we read the next two verses and and just say, you know, we're so familiar with what comes next. We're so familiar with it, and yet it's so beautiful. You know, it's the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of our great treasure. And so I just want to ask, Lord, help us to read this with fresh eyes, as though hearing it for the very first time. Help us not to move on quickly from what we're reading next. Read with me, verses 33 and 34. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The Son of Man, Jesus says, the glorious, eternal God the Son, Given everlasting dominion, all the nations serve him. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, and the Son of Man will be what? Delivered over delivered over to chief priests and scribes. In fact, betrayed by one of his closest friends. One of his closest friends. Can you imagine? Mark writes of Judas in Mark chapter 14, 45. And and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
delivered over to chief priests and scribes. More than that, they will, he says, condemn him to death. In Mark chapter 14, verse 60, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to death. Delivered over to the scribes and chief priests and they condemned him to death. And Jesus says, will deliver him over to the Gentiles. I think we lose the force of how devastating this is. Because implicit in this is that Jesus the true king, would be rejected by all his people. It says in chapter 15, verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You know, Peter Bolt writes about crucifixion. He says the following. He says, Crucifixion normally involved a fairly drawn-out process of abuse and humiliation before the victim was fixed to the cross. This consisted of passing sentence, scourging, being led outside the city, and carrying the crossbeam, all in the context of mockery and abuse. The humiliation also involved varying degrees of what our world would call sexual abuse. In Jesus' case, we know, for example, that he was stripped naked inside the praetorium, and then again at the cross. It was quite usual to taunt and mock the condemned, especially in the case of someone who was a pretender to kingship as we shall see when we turn to Mark 15, where the Roman soldiers mock and abuse the one who was called the king of the Jews. Jesus therefore predicts that his humiliation will consist of mockery, spitting, and the dreadful scourging, which was often so severe it could tear the flesh off the victim's back, even causing death in some cases. This is what he's predicting will happen to him. Crucifixion. The most horrible form of execution invented by men. And so he would be mocked. He would be stripped naked, a purple robe placed on him, a crown of thorns on his head. They would strike him again and again and again. They would spit on him. The council would spit on him. The people would spit on him. The soldiers would spit on him. You can imagine the spit falling down off his face. The Son of Man flogged. 
beaten by his people, beaten by the Romans, scourged, the the whip-ripping strips of flesh from his back as he cries in agony. He would be killed. He would be crucified. The nails driven through his wrists, lifted up in agony to suffocate, stripped naked, humiliated, dying, gasping for breath. This is what Jesus predicts. And for people fearful and expectant of an imminent march into Jerusalem, this would have been shocking. This would have been confusing. This would have been disheartening. But why? Why would he allow it? Why must he die? Well, the answer is verse 45. This verse is perhaps the greatest verse in the whole of Mark's gospel. Every single word is significant in this verse. And it's the first time he will explain for us the reason why he had to die. Read with me verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life. The cross wasn't an accident. He willfully gave up his life. He came to give his life as a ransom. A ransom is the price of release for a slave. Uh, Donald English, the uh, famous uh, scholar, says the following. He says, The ransom was a familiar image in Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures. It was the price paid to liberate a slave a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. John Stott goes on to say, inevitably then, the emphasis of the redemption, that's the ransom image, is on our sorry state. Indeed, our captivity in sin, which made an act of divine rescue necessary. He came to give his life as a ransom. You see, sin, our rebellion against God, We were in slavery to it. We were in slavery to rebellion against God. Rebellion, wickedness, defilement, they'd owned us, they'd mastered us, they were controlling us. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word for in Greek is best probably translated as instead of. He came to give his life as a ransom, as a price for release, instead of many. We were in bondage to sin. Our price beyond anything we could could possibly pay. He came to give his life instead of many. He was our substitute on that cross. And just think about this morning, the value of our ransom. Think about the value of the one who died. This is the eternal Son of God Himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
of infinite value is his ransom. Ransom for, ransom instead of many. There is limitless atonement for those who would come to him. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, in him we have redemption. That is, in him we have been ransomed through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Well, church, how would you expect the disciples to respond to this glorious prediction, to the Savior's remarkable self-sacrifice? Well, they show they have completely failed to understand again. And that brings us to our second point, a disappointing request. Read with me verse 35 through to 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You know, James and John had been nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. These guys clearly had quite volatile, kind of aggressive personalities, and they are full of self-confidence. Also, they're part of Jesus' inner circle. They'd been present for the raising of Jairus, Jairus' daughter. Um, they'd also been present on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're thinking, Jesus is marching into Jerusalem to take the throne. Opportunity. Opportunity. Notice, interestingly, who's missing from their request. Of the inner three, Peter. No wonder it was so memorable to Peter as he informs Mark, he'd been left out. They're looking to sneak one over him. They're looking to secure key positions for themselves. Notice it's not all negative. They seem quite confident Jesus will be victorious as king. But they want positions for themselves. Perhaps they have some insight that Jesus might not answer their request so favorably. So they're looking for a blank check. Would you do whatever we ask? And Jesus is not falling for that. Look what he says. What do you want me to do for you? And they kind of, you can imagine them sheepishly, sheepishly kind of looking at each other. Oh, nothing much. Just, you know, one of us at your right, one of us at your left in your glory. The images of Jesus on a throne, but with two smaller thrones, kind of key advisors, and they want those roles for themselves. The glory of a physical kingdom. But they've completely misunderstood what Jesus is talking about. They've completely misunderstood what he's about to do in Jerusalem. They're, they're only thinking of themselves. These are two proud men seeking their own advancement. And church, it really shows that the Savior is truly marching to the cross, completely alone. They don't ask, could you give us faith to endure your suffering? They don't ask, is there a way we could ease your pain or discomfort? 
They simply ask, give us the best positions. Let's keep reading verse 38. Jesus says, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You guys have no idea what I'm about to do. You don't know what you're asking. And so he asks two rhetorical questions. The answer to Jesus' questions is no. Can you drink from my cup? Means you cannot drink from my cup. Can you be baptized with my baptism? Means you cannot be baptized with my baptism. You see, cup in the Old Testament is something allotted to you by God, usually a symbol of the punishment of the wicked, kind of like the expression in English, a taste of your own medicine, the judgment and wrath of God. Can you take what has been allotted to me? Can you drink my cup? Baptism is kind of a depiction of being overwhelmed, like when we baptize people in church. It's like plunged into death and then raised to life. And you can almost see them kind of a little bit puzzled by what Jesus is saying, not even realizing it's a rhetorical question. And they look at each other and they say, yeah, yeah, sure, easy Jesus, yeah, we can handle that. Completely missed the point. Read on with me, verse 39. And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. The cup that I'll drink, Jesus says, you will drink. You will drink something of what's been allotted to me. The baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. You will experience something of my suffering, something of being overwhelmed. But but those at either side of me is not mine to grant. It's allotted by the Father. Jesus is willfully submitting himself to the Father. You know, church, ironically, on his right and left in his glory would not be two disciples, but would be two criminals. Read with me verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Not indignant because it was inappropriate. James and John were trying to get one up on them, and they're indignant because they want to try and secure the best positions for themselves indignant because they got in first and tried to get an unfair advantage. It appears, once again, the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. You know, John Stott writes the following about this. He says, The brother's statement, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, surely qualifies as the worst, most blatantly self-centered prayer ever prayed. They seemed to have anticipation that there would be an unholy scramble for the most honorable seats in the kingdom. So they judged it prudent to make an advance reservation. Their request to sit in state with Jesus was nothing but a bright mirror of human vanity. It was the exact opposite of true prayer, which is, whose purpose is never to bend God's will to ours, but always to bend our will to his. 
Yet the world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status-seekers, hungry for honour and prestige, measuring life by achievement and everlastingly dreaming of success. They are aggressively ambitious for themselves. You know, we shouldn't be too quick to laugh at James, John and the disciples. We can so quickly forget the self-sacrificing call of Jesus. You know, I've been thinking about that uh, just recently. Uh, Many of you know I've been trying to start my own business. Uh, It's a mobile physiotherapy business. And uh, I kind of thought that I'd start it and it'd be like, here I am. And people would be, you know, flocking in the doors to come and see me as a physio. But I found it really hard. And I've actually found myself often very anxious about it. And I've been sharing with the guys in my group and coming to realize, and as I've been thinking about, why am I so anxious? Why am I so worried? And it all boils down to the fact that I care what people think about me. You know, Charlotte and I, we're not in a season where we particularly need the money, but my reputation is on the line. And I'm bothered that people would think that I'm good at what I do. And so I worry. You know, church, we can be just like the disciples, focused on honor, focused on status, focused on personal gain. But the great love of Christ for us in these next few verses, it is amazing. See the way his self-sacrificing example radically changes his disciples. And that brings us to our final point, our third point, a lesson on servant leadership. Read with me verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be among you. Jesus says it's common knowledge that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people and their great ones exercise authority. Literally, it means tyrannize people. You know, during that time, uh, there would have been copper coins like the denarius, which Jesus uses in Mark chapter 12 in wide distribution. And on those coins would have been a picture of Caesar Tiberius, with the inscription, he who deserves adoration on it. And Jesus, in light of the rules around them, says, it shall not be like this with you guys. Literally, he says, it is not so among you. The kingdom of God has different values, is what Jesus is saying. In fact, the values of this kingdom are the opposite of the world on this point. See what he says next. But whoever would be great. Notice he doesn't rebuke James and John for wanting to be great. He redefines for them what greatness is. He instructs them where to look for it, how to achieve it. Church, we would do well to listen carefully to this, to carefully consider and apply what the Savior says here. Let's, let's continue reading in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Two images of greatness in the kingdom. The first, the household servant. And the second, the slave. Household servant. Those who would cook and clean, tend to animals. It's the ordinary Greek word for waiting on tables. Slave. Someone even more inferior. Literally, the property of someone else. The lowest of the low. By definition, not great. The absolute lowest. Well, what do these two different categories have in common? Well, both are focused on tending to the needs of others. And that's what true greatness is. True greatness, biblically defined, is serving others for the glory of God. True greatness is serving others for God's glory. You see, servants are focused on others. They're motivated by a love for God and they're careful observers of other people. They, they, they notice and attend to their needs. Truly great people are so full of love for God and other people that they don't think about their own position or rank or success. They're self-forgetful. They're students of God and of other people. They study other people to learn about how to love them. And this church is bursting at the seams with truly great people. Truly great people, I put to you, church, are absolutely everywhere in this church. They're present amongst parents, particularly parents of young children, you know, in uh, observing and looking in uh, at the way in which particularly mums with young children serve in this church. Uh, I'm safe to say that Charlotte and I are thankful to the Lord for the season that we're in. It is a difficult task. And biblically defined, truly a great task. You know, in this church, there's people setting up this auditorium even before you arrive, working on the sound desk. As soon as we finish, there's people packing it down on the kids' ministry. Do you know that this church has like a hundred, nearly a hundred children? And you know, it, like sometimes it feels like people in this church they need to watch more television or something. I don't know. This church, there's just children coming everywhere. You know, every week we have 12 people on the kids' roster serving our children, backing away, not being seen by anyone, but just serving. It's true greatness. In music ministry, up on the stage, youth on Fridays, group leading, I could go on. You know, if you're a visitor to this church, I'd say, come and speak with me. You know, we need more help in this church. We need more people serving in this church. But the point is this. True greatness is serving others. You know, this definition of greatness, it's so foreign, it's so against our culture and the values of the world. I think we would do well to spend some time this week meditating on it. How can I be truly great at school? How can I be truly great at home? How can I be truly great towards my spouse, at my workplace? with my family? How can I be a better servant, a better slave of Christ? But finally, what hope is there for disciples like me who really struggle to give our lives away in service? Now, if we're honest, 
in our secret thoughts, we're sometimes just like James and John. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and for you, you're struggling with a call to ministry, a desire to preach and desire to teach. You're serving, but in the hope it'll lead to something else. And if God were to say to you, no, I just want you to carry on serving in the way you are, you'd be deeply dissatisfied. Maybe you're battling against envy. You look on at someone's marriage or their children or their career or their home and you want what they have. You want that for yourself. Maybe someone, you're someone who's desiring recognition. You're serving, but you feel others just simply do not appreciate you. And your serving goes on unnoticed. What hope is there for disciples like us who struggle with being like James and John, giving our lives away in service? Well, we see hope in the transformation of James and John. See, James and John come to Jesus driven by selfish ambition. But they did not stay this way at all. In Acts chapter 12, we read a little bit about what happened to James. Acts chapter 12 verse 1 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. You see, James, the apostle, would be the first of the disciples to lay his life down for the sake of the Lord. This is a man transformed. This is a man who is no longer the same. This is far removed from the man we read about in our passage this morning. But equally, not just James but the Apostle John as well. You see, John was not martyred, but he would die, to our best understanding, in exile on the island of Patmos, where he would pen these words. And I want you to hear these words from 1 John 3.16. John writes, By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a man completely transformed? But how? How were they transformed? And the answer is verse 45. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the ransom of many and the transformation of many. Many who were once motivated by selfish ambition for self-exaltation can become truly great in the eyes of God by serving others for the glory of God. Jesus went to the cross. He paid for these men's sin and radically transformed their lives. James and John would be transformed by his death and resurrection. C.J. Mahaney puts it beautifully like this. He says, Two men motivated by selfish ambition have been transformed into servants of the gospel by the Savior's sacrifice. Two men who became truly great in the eyes of God 
Hear this. Sinful individuals motivated by selfish ambition are the raw material that God delights to work with. Actually, it's the only material that God has to work with. Isn't that true? James and John are men transformed by the radical self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not only did he model self-sacrifice in his death and resurrection, he made it possible by his death and resurrection as well. You know, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with selfish ambition, I want to invite you, all you need to do is to come to the foot of the cross and ask for help. In closing, we live in a city that values getting ahead. But Jesus models a way that is radically different. His way was to offer us a love so great that he laid down his life to save us. Would we be freshly amazed by and embrace the self-sacrificing example of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for your patience with us and your care for us. Lord, you are patient and you are good. Lord, thank you that when these selfish men came to you, you didn't turn them away. You then rebuke them in anger, but you gently taught them a greater way. Lord, this morning we're reminded afresh that often we come with hearts that are torn by other desires. Desires for being greater in the eyes of others. Desires for comfort. Desires for success. Desires for honor. Desires for recognition Lord afresh this morning in light of this we ask you for transforming grace help us to sit at the foot of your cross and embrace your radical example of self-sacrifice Lord may we be truly great and pray this in Jesus name Amen